So with the first, with the fourteenth verse of the Gospel of John, it says, "And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us." Uh, there is a, a New Testament scholar by the name of Eugene Peterson, and his translation—it's kind of a paraphrase, a kind of a metaphor—says, "And the Word became flesh, and moved into the neighborhood." And that idea, that reality has animated our thinking as a church since the very beginning. So Storefront Church, as a way to follow God, as a way to uh, follow Christ, has moved into this particular neighborhood. It's the neighborhood that we've lived in for some time. But now we are about the business of doing neighboring in a whole other way. Uh, and we've experienced some of that this week. It's been invigorating. It's been inspiring. It's also felt like moments of true vulnerability. And in each of those moments, um, it's drawn me to a greater reality of, of what Jesus has done to love his neighbor. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to grow, I hope, in our understanding and in our practice of what's called the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and Love your neighbor as yourself. And so let's look at this great commandment by reflecting on the, one of the passages in which it is expounded upon. I shouldn't say expounded because it's quite brief. But join me as we look at Matthew 22 in just six verses. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And that's the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning as we come to this text, the complex relationships that we have with you, uh, with to those in our neighborhood, would you uh, work through us to declare your great love to the world? Lord, would you make visible, real, the reality of Jesus' neighborliness to us? And through your spirit, would you help us to be a people? that actually loves others as you have loved us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, Chantal and I had, had an opportunity to, um, to meet with the directors of operations for Avenue School. They've become good friends, people that we really enjoy. They're incredibly helpful to us as a church. But as we were gathering together, you know, as you do with people that you just come to know, you move off business fairly quickly and you just get to brainstorming and talking about life. And one of the things they began to share with us is that some of the vision uh, of this particular school. And one of the things that they encourage the students to consider is, how do you address global problems locally? With all that's going on in the world, all that's going on out there, how do we as, as a school in a particular neighborhood begin to think about those problems, consider those problems, and then to begin to address them in our local context, in our daily lives? And of course, that's the right question. <laughs> that's a good question. 
Uh, that's the question that we are, are processing through. Uh, that's the question that animates us as a church. How do we consider all the things that, that we as human beings struggle with and are burdened by and, and maybe feel oppressed under and begin to think through how we begin to solve in some real sense those problems in our own particular neighborhood? Um, so it's the right question, but it's not a new question. It's an ancient question. And you might say it's the question that gets answered at Christmas. That God recognizes the great dilemma of all humanity, which is sin and death. And that he commits to entering into that problem, to solve that problem, to reconcile that problem in a local context. By entering into the world, into a small location in the ancient Near East. And so he addresses that problem uh, by entering into, moving into the neighborhood. And when we see Jesus enter into a local context, what you begin to see is transformation abounds all around him. And so just as we look at this particular passage, I'd just like us to consider three ways that we see transformation occur because of the presence of Christ. And those are that holy moments occur on a daily basis, you might say. The second is, is that love is given its proper place because of Christ. And that new neighbors become known. Okay? So holy moments occur. Love is given its proper place. New, new, and new neighbors become known. That's the kind of transformation we see through the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so let's, let's look at the first point here. Through the life of Jesus, holy moments occur all around him. Now, if you were to look at maybe a Western calendar, right, January through December, you might look at that calendar, you might say, from a Christian's perspective, there's really two holy moments here. There's Christmas and there's Easter. As you get into the ancient text, as you begin to thumb through the New Testament, there are holy moments, really, on every single page, all throughout the life and the ministry of Jesus, he is making every moment holy. Every moment holy. And we see this here uh, in this particular passage in which there are a few instances with, when he's meeting with a, a really hostile group of people that he turns this, their hostility into an encounter with holiness. Who is, he, who is he actually having a conversation with? Well, there are two, people, two groups of people that have, in some sense, become one based on their hostility to God. They're the Sadducees and they're the Pharisees. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees, in some sense, are kind of like the Republicans and the Democrats. They're kind of like the Democrats and the Republicans. The Sadducees are uh, a Jewish uh, community, a religious community. The Pharisees, Jewish uh, uh, religious community. And why I say they're like the Republicans and the Democrats is because both the Sadducees and the Pharisees make up the Jewish ruling council. They're sort of the legislative governing religious body over Jerusalem. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees had most things in common, but there are very specific things which divided them, which created tremendous conflict to them, between them and actually dictated how they lived out their particular lives. So the Sadducees 
uh, believed in just the five books of the Torah. That's what they thought God uh, provided to his people. They didn't recognize the other uh, books of the Old Testament. They looked at this, the five books of the Torah. That was the one distinguishing mark. The second was they didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in an actual resurrection. They believed that God was God. There was no real spirit world, but everything outside of God was uh, material, was matter. And so that's essentially what they believed. And because of that, they believed that how you lived your life was very important today. And some, some uh, scholars would say that they were a, pre a precursor to the Epicureans. Now, the Epicureans were the community that embodied the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so in some sense, the Sadducees, they were, uh, took their jobs very seriously, took their lives very seriously, but they lived for the moment. They lived for the day. Now, the Pharisees were very different. They believed in a broader uh, canon of literacy that God provided. They also believed in the resurrection. And their, their entire intent, their whole um, mindset as, a, as, a, as individuals in our culture was, I need to get to that place. And they did that by not just living for the day, but living through a law. Building fences that enabled them to remain safe and holy, to live in accordance with God's law. And of course, you can see that that wouldn't make them liberal, you might say, in, in a day-to-day -day basis, but more conservative, more traditional. So you can see sort of some, some overlap between their culture and ours, between their nature and ours. And there was great conflict between them, except when it came to Jesus. When it came to Jesus, they weren't at conflict. They were actually comrades in trying to get him. And so here's Jesus in the midst of this conflict, and he's creating holy moments. And why do I say that? Why do I keep saying that? Because not once, not twice, but three times, Matthew is very intentional in saying that the people were, in one form or another, astonished by Jesus. And so before we get into the meat of this loving your neighbor and loving God, let's just look at the way that he creates holy moments within this group of hostile people. In verses, verse 1134, which is the verse immediately before the verse I've just read, it says, when crowds heard this, meaning this teaching that Jesus had given about the resurrection, that they were astonished at his teaching. Now, we need that. Because when we look at the text that I just read here, where it says they were, that Jesus silenced them, we might get the idea that he told them all to just shut up. Right? I'm in control. I'm the son of God. You be quiet. That's not what he said at all. In fact, it was just that his teaching and his presence was so beautiful and so profound that he knew the scriptures so well that he left them in awe, that he left them pondering their own lives, their own faith. And of course, when we think of the word astonished, what do we generally think? It's a generally a positive word. It means surprised. It can mean stupefied. Uh, to be astonished is an intense experience of wonder. And therefore, we need to be able to take this idea of astonished and begin to translate that they weren't silenced because they were reprimanded. They were silenced because they're still feasting on the beauty and truth of, of Jesus in their midst. 
the second place that we see that uh, uh, is, oh, excuse me. Lastly, uh, so they were silenced because they were in awe, not because he told them to be quiet. Uh, in fact, we learn from Mark's account, this is the second place, there's a second place in which the same experience is, is uh, uh, shared, that in the midst of this astonishment, there's a teacher who's brave enough to stand up and ask another question of Jesus. And we might begin to surmise why he might be brave. I think that's right to do that. Maybe he's as hostile as the others. We don't quite know yet. But he stands up and he asks Jesus this particular question. And we'll talk about all the ins and outs of that particular exchange in a second. But what we learn from that is that there's alignment there. That Jesus actually recognizes in this exchange that there is community between the two of them, you might say. I'm, try, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm being a little opaque. But essentially, when Jesus says the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, this one man stands up and says, that's right. That's right what you're saying. And Jesus sort of steps across the aisle, if you will, towards him, at least verbally. And he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And everybody, it says, dared not to speak. And so three times, Jesus, by his presence, by his language, within a hostile and divisive community, makes holy moments. And why do I want to just hunker down on this? Why, do, why is it important for us to realize that can happen, that does happen, wherever Jesus is? I think in some senses because holy moments are few and far between in our lives. That we live in a culture that is highly irreverent, cynical, sarcastic. Anything that feels lofty and sacred, we kind of tear down a little bit. We're afraid to step across, you might say. We're afraid to meet the moment. Oftentimes we're afraid to actually experience the kind of gravity that Jesus forces each and every individual to consider. But when you, when you encounter a holy moment, you know that you can't take it. But we also know that we can avoid it that we can run from it. But the incarnation means for Christians is they mo that, they, that they must not do that because Jesus doesn't avoid it. He doesn't fake it. But he actually enters into difficult spaces to make that happen. That's what the Storefront Church is all about. Stoli Storefront Church is about creating a space where holy moments can just happen. Right. So if we look at the look at Christian life, we don't just say, "Oh, here's a holy Sunday on Christmas and a holy Sunday Sunday on Easter." But we know our whole lives are are for the purpose of creating uh, holy moments all around us, making every moment holy. So when we think about storefront space, or excuse me, when we think about the neighborhood the neighborhood that Jesus moved into, and the Marys and the Marthas that he encounters. 
and the Nicodemuses who meet him in the middle of the night, and the paralytic whose friends take him to the house and they rip off the roof. And story after story after story in a neighborhood, we see that Jesus enters into troubling times, divisive lives, complicated scenarios, and brings his holiness. That's what we're about. That's what we hope to be. So first point, holy moments occur. The second is that love is given its proper place. Now, I just talk a little bit about the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They've joined forces. They're not usually um, together. They're not usually comrades, but they are uh, here against Jesus. And they come to Jesus, and they ask him a particular question in order to test him. And what's interesting to me is that they're not very neighborly. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were people in power, and they used their power. They were people with influence, and they used their influence. They were people with knowledge, and they used their knowledge. And they even had a sense of justice. And they were trying in their own way to bring it to bear on Jesus. They tried to mock him, ridicule him, and yet, and humiliate him. And so they asked him this question. It's kind of a weird question. The question is, what is the greatest commandment? Now, scholars are a little bit divided on what is this question? Is this a question for a real scholar? Or is this a catechesis question you ask a little kid? And I think good questions probably are helpful for both. <laughs> but it reminds me of when I first became a Christian, I, I pretty much lived in the book of John. Uh, I loved the book of John. It was simple and profound. And in some sense, I never wanted to leave home. I just kind of wanted to stay there. But whenever I would meet other Christians, I'd ask a kind of silly question, which is, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And I remember I met Susan's uh, childhood uh, priest, Father Kang. And I asked him that question. I was kind of just trying to make conversation, but I knew he was very respected in their community. And he laughed at me because he knew I was pretty new in the faith. And he said, the one I'm presently reading. And the idea, of course, is that Christians really shouldn't have any book of the Bible that they think is the greatest, right? Because every book of the Bible is essentially one chapter in one big story, all with the same author. And so any your favorite book of the Bible should be the one you're in this morning or whenever you're reading it is because you're being fed. It's alive. It's living. It's active. Right? And so when I think about this question, what's the greatest commandment? In some sense, I feel like, are they trying to trap him? Is he walking into a trap? And of course, to answer that question, uh, in a book that has over 600 commandments, somebody who's trying to be nefarious might be just trying to get Jesus to lean to the left or to the right and to expose him, to reveal him, and then catch him in their snares. And of course, Jesus is way too savvy for that. And as they try to expose him, what does he do? He answers very quickly, very succinctly, and tells them the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And essentially what he does is he embodies the law 
in his response. He does to them what the law commands. Though they are being uh, exerting their power in an unhelpful way, though they are being oppressive to him, though they are taking all of these beautiful qualities uh, that you and I long for or love uh, in our particular culture, and they are twisting them and turning them and using them in an improper way. Jesus, because he loves the Lord God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind, answers them with the love that one should have for their neighbor. So he, in a sense, when they're trying to reveal him, he exposes all of them. And they're quiet. So Jesus gives them just the opposite. By stating that the great commandment is to love God with all you are and to love your neighbor. Uh, He gives them the patience in some sense that they don't deserve, but which as those who are created in the image of God uh, actually long for. Because he's ruled by love. He loves God and he loves his neighbor as God's word commands. By both his answer and his actions, he demonstrates what they haven't done for him. And he presently does what the the command actually calls us to do. Out of his love for God, he loves others. So love, more than any other characteristic of God's people, is given its proper place. Love takes preeminence over every other quality, characteristic, aspect that we're called to in Scripture. And what kind of love is this? Well, it's agape love. It's sacrificial love. Now, let me just pause for a second. Remember a moment ago I had said that we can't fake holy moments, but we can avoid them. But we can also just simply miss them because we're so accustomed to them, because we take them for granted. And I think this is the case when we talk about sacrificial love as it relates to Jesus. Of course, Jesus is the one who introduced sacrificial love, lives out sacrificial love. That's just just part of our ethos. It's part of our culture. We just simply take it for granted. I've been reading this book called Biblical Critical Theory. Uh, It's written by a guy named Christopher Watkins. It's like the book. It's all the rage. I think rightly so. Pretty fascinating. It's not a simple read. (laughs) I'm having a lot of hard, I'm I'm having a hard time with it. But he introduces his chapter on love and the the Christian ethos of love by telling a story about Princess Diana. Now, Princess, everybody knows Princess Diana now, right? We all know Princess Diana still? Yes? Good. Um, Check myself sometimes. So he tells a story about how when Princess Di came to New York City and she was, a picture was taken of her hugging uh, a child who was, uh, had HIV and AIDS, or AIDS, he had AIDS, I believe. And how when he was watching The Crown, he saw this, and The Crown made much of it in the film, but it didn't have much impact on him. It didn't take his breath away. That a woman, a royal figure, would lean down and hold this this young child who had AIDS. And the reality is, is the reason it didn't have much impact is he was too young to experience the time and the place in which to do such a thing would have been utterly shocking. 
He didn't remember when the world was afraid of the AIDS virus and that to come into contact with somebody struck fear in the hearts of everybody around the world. And therefore, he didn't understand how remarkable that act was and how, in, you know, commentators say, just that one picture of Princess Di leaning in and hugging this small child with AIDS transformed the conversation on AIDS forever. In that one moment, like, she did more than any PR firm could ever do. And people became sympathetic and empathetic in the same way that she was. And so he starts the chapter on ethics talking about this. And he says that it changed the conversation uh, for her to go ahead and do this. And, but the irony, uh, where am I? This is what he says. Such is our reaction today. Wait, let me see. The crown, he, in, he found her gesture in the crown a little bit unremarkable precisely because it had been so remarkable in its transforming power. And let me uh, explain this. He says, such is our reaction today when we reflect on the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. So much of what Jesus taught and did has become normal for us now. So seemingly part of our common sense attitude to the world that we miss how radical and innovative it was both in its own day and if we have ears to hear it today as well. Just like Lady Di and the AIDS victims, the reason Jesus' teaching does not take our breath away is that it, it has so completely transformed the way we think and act already. After all, it is only the incomplete revolutions that are remembered. Those that triumph are taken for granted. And we have to remember that, I think. And when we hear Jesus talking about sacrificial love and we see him actually living it out, we mustn't take it for granted. It was so impactful then that it transformed the world. And now it's just the air we breathe. But let it take our breath away. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their breath is taken away because Jesus has put love in its proper place and they realize they've taken the principles of a loving God and they sought to apply them without experiencing the love of God themselves. And perhaps they recognize how loving and dangerous or excuse me, how unloving and how dangerous and how hollow feeling that experience actually is. And they're at a loss for words. Watkin goes on to talk about the, the power of having love at the, at the epicenter of our lives. He says, more than any other predisposition, social attitude or concept, love must distinguish, love, love most distinguishes the ethics of the kingdom of God in both the ancient and the modern world. Jesus has no hesitation in summing up the vast complex of prohibitions and mandates, structures, patterns, and rhythms of the Old Testament law under the banner of love. Love is the epicenter of the distinctly Christian way of being in the world. And here's what I think is helpful for us. Not power, respect, or tolerance, and not equality, justice, freedom, enlightenment, or submission. Love is the overall shape of Christian ethics. The, the form of human participation in the created world. Love. And so what is he saying? It's that our use of other distinctly Christian contributions to the world ought to be governed by and motivated from love. So truth is informed by love. Power is informed by love. Equality is informed by love. Justice must fly under the banner of the love of Christ. And when we see this done poorly, we know that it's so obvious. 
because it's not self-serving. When it's done sacrificially out of love, we cannot not see the difference. Isn't that why we're honoring the life of Dr. King this weekend? Because he lived a life of equality and justice and truth and freedom under the banner of the sacrificial love of Jesus. And he paid the ultimate price. And so now the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their breath is taken away because Jesus has put love in its proper place. And I would imagine that they are uh, aghast at themselves in some way. I hope that's true. But one person in there is a, has his breath taken away, maybe for positive reasons. Because he realizes that his life, uh, with his life, he's meant to love the Lord with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and his neighbor as, in, as himself. And he goes on to say that, that, that all of the sacrifices that we could actually offer God is not enough. What he ultimately needs is a life of sacrifice to God. Because if you look at these particular verses, you can't help but notice I can't do this unless I give everything to God. I can't love him unless I give all to him. I can't love my neighbor unless I give all to him. And so what does this particular scholar, scribe, stand up and, and uh, who stands up, what does he actually need? He needs a neighbor who can provide that which he cannot give. You know, that's what neighbors are for, aren't they? Neighbors are there for us in times of need. And we tend to just look for neighbors when we need a cup of sugar. We tend to look for neighbors when we need someone to sit for us or do something small. But this particular individual and we ourselves need a neighbor that does so much more. See, Jesus recognizes the global problem, that we're not reconciled to the world. And so he enters into the world, into the neighborhood. To meet our need. Not to give us a cup of sugar, but to provide salvation. Now just imagine what Jesus, how Jesus perceives of this particular verse. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as, as yourself. He, has, he lives into one, which leads him to the other. He lives, lives into both, does he not? Now listen, Jesus has to love the Lord thy God with all their heart with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind, every moment of his life. Every moment has to be holy. See, if Jesus is like us, kind of a faulty neighbor, what that means is he goes to the cross willingly, but not perfectly. But you and I need a neighbor who goes to the cross, not just willingly, but perfectly. Because he is the substitutionary sacrifice. He's the gift that we can offer to God, his life, not ours. That's the kind of neighbor, neighborly gift that he, that he gives to us. And he looks at our life and he says, I have to live this way because I know exactly what they need. I know their strengths, their weaknesses, their faults, their failures. But I'm willing to provide. And of course, that's exactly what he does. And when that occurs, this guy recognizes, and I think we can begin to recognize too, that new neighbors become known. 
And I believe that when this man stands up, Jesus sees in him somebody who has the potential to be a neighbor. He says, you're close to the kingdom of God. But close isn't enough. Jesus says, by my life, by my neighborliness, I'll bring you in. I'll go to the cross out of my love for the Lord and out of my love for you. And that's exactly what he does. And just in wrapping up, you know, we've been reading a lot about what it looks like to live in a neighborhood and be a part of the city and so on and so forth. And, you know, as you look at particular studies, what, what commentators say is that Christians, their activity in the lives of cities doesn't look that much different when it comes to being a neighbor than non-Christians. But that by and large, though, marketers and city planners are all trying to uh, work together so that uh, cities can, can function and, and reflect more neighborhoods. The reality is, is that we're more disconnected than we ever have been. And so what does it look like for us to enter into a community and actually be holy connections in the lives of people? That we be neighbors because we know our neighbors enough to know what they need. That we love God enough and our neighbors enough to sacrifice our needs for them. That we put ourselves in a position that even though we may feel incredibly vulnerable, that we're routinely experiencing the holiness and beauty of Christ in the midst of those spaces. That's the hope for us as a church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the love of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that he really did love you with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, with everything that he had. And he gave everything that he had so that we might be able to love you too. Help that love in us spill over to others. Pray this in Jesus' name.